0: sixth chapter of Isaiah. I was reading a book recently uh, by Stephen Wold entitled, Is God Still Here? And uh, he referred to an accidental death of a young man by the name of Paul Rogness, whose father had written a book about the death of his son entitled, Appointment with Death. And uh, the father tells how uh, they heard an announcement on the radio uh, that uh, Minnesota uh, had experienced its 450, excuse me, 405th traffic death that afternoon, but it never dawned on them it was their son, a young 24-year-old Rhodes Scholar, and uh, how shaken they were, but he says... And he wold quotes from Roginus' book. He says, I was not angry with God. How could I have God responsible for street accidents or for the slow march of cancer or for the bomb of Hiroshima? I could be angry at this sorry scheme of things where things go astray both for God and man. Some people may be comforted, says Rajnis, in the thought that God, as a great engineer and architect, arranges everything that happens. I find a greater comfort in the thought that God did not want this young life so soon transferred to another part of his enterprises, but that he too sorrowed with us and would have wished him to serve now in this world and not in some other. Wold's comment on Roginus' comments goes like this. He says, Roginus was well aware of the tempting thought that God as a great engineer and architect had arranged the accident for some Larger purpose. But he refused to find comfort in a false manner that holds God responsible for arranging the accidents. He was willing to accept the fact that accidents happen in a world where people have the kind of freedom that can result in accidentally taking another's life. You notice uh, what neither one of these men did. Neither one of these men referred to a word of Scripture. They talked about, I prefer to think. He resisted the tempting thought. But neither one referred to a word of Scripture. What saith the Scripture? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 46, where Isaiah takes a different perspective. Isaiah 46 verse 9, God says, Remembering the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none like, I am God, there is none else, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Notice uh, God's prediction of future events. What does God do? He declares the end from the beginning. He tells you what's going to take place in the end, and He does it at the beginning. The prediction of future events. Think of the... Just hundreds of instances of this in Scripture, where uh, hundreds and thousands of years ahead, Jesus, uh, God gave details about the coming of Jesus, where he'd be born. You remember when uh, the wise men come to Herod, and uh, they say, Where is he that is to be born King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Herod called the Old Testament scholars, and he said, Where is the Messiah to be born? And they said, Oh, we thought you were going to ask us something hard. That's easy. Bethlehem. For it is written, Thou Bethlehem and the land of Euphrates are not the least among the princes of Israel. For out of thee shall come forth he who is to be ruler of my people, whose goings forth have been from old, yea, from everlasting. Now that was written by Micah, 700 B.C. And he says, Go to Bethlehem and you'll find him. Uh, You had Isaiah, as we'll see in a couple of Sundays, uh, predicting Uh, The details surrounding his death, that he would make his death with wicked men. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Uh, You find uh, Zechariah predicting that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And what would happen with those 30 pieces of silver? That they'd be cast down in the Lord's house and go to purchase the potter's field. Uh, That he'd ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And on and on and on. God tells the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. How does God know the future? Well, you say, God is God, and God can see ahead. But that's not what it says in the text. What does the text say? The text says, I declare the end from the beginning... Saying, My counsel shall stand. He tells the future because he's planned the future. My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And here you get this plan embracing all events. My counsel, the American Standard Version says, my purpose. Uh, E.J. Young in his commentary on Isaiah says another word, for counsel is plan. My plan shall stand. Uh, God predicts because he's previously destined, predestined. Providence is God's arranging of events so that the plan falls out. And the shorter catechism defines providence as God's preserving and governing all of His creatures in all of their actions. Now, all events are included within this plan. All embrace it. From the standpoint of logic, that would have to be true, because big events are made up of small events. For the want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For the want of a horse, a rider was lost. For the want of a rider, a battle was lost. All because of the want of a nail. You have to control the little events in order to control the big events. When the Titanic sank, SOSs were sent out. There was a ship close enough to have recovered all the survivors. But the man at the wireless had a headache. And about two minutes before the SOS went out, he took his headset off. So he didn't receive the message. To control the big events, you have to control the little events. From a standpoint of logic, it has to be all-embracing. From a standpoint of Scripture, it is all-embracing. Ephesians 1.11 Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Acts 15:18. known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of the creation. Matthew 10, 29 and 30, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and not one of them shall fall to the ground without your heavenly Father? God controls what happens to the sparrows. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered, he says, so don't be afraid. I'm controlling everything. Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, God is not the author of evil, but he's saying everything is in the control uh, of my plan. Ephesians 4:11. excuse me, Exodus 4:11, 11, where uh, God says to Moses, Moses, who made man's mouth? Or who make the deaf or the dumb or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, the Lord. Your child is born deaf or dumb or blind. Shall we hold God responsible? God says, hold me responsible. Who made the deaf or the dumb or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, the Lord. The plan is all-inclusive. The plan includes evil events. Think of uh, Joseph when he's betrayed by his brothers. Certainly that's an evil act. Sold into slavery. But later on, and as you you read ahead, you find that God had planned that his descendants, that uh, Abraham's descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Now, they're not in Egypt, and God has to get them down to Egypt. How is he going to do that? Uh, well, <clears throat> he has uh, He has jealousy developed. Now, he doesn't have to make Joseph's brothers jealous. All he has to do is give Joseph a dream and a many-colored coat. And automatically, the jealousy which comes out of our own evil hearts arises. In the dream, uh, Joseph sees his brothers bowing down to him. And they purpose to kill him. And then God has a wandering band of Ishmaelites come by, just at the right point, who are going down to Egypt. Instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery. Then uh, God uh, has him wind up in prison. And then he gives the two men in prison with him a dream. And Joseph is enabled by God to interpret their dream. Then he gives Pharaoh a dream. And one of these servants of Pharaoh's who had been restored to him says, I remember a man who interpreted my dream. And the first thing you know, you have Israel down in Egypt. All a part of the plan. Now, an evil act was part of that. Later on, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good, to save many people alive. God is not the author of evil. But he takes the evil and he channels it and uses it for his own good purpose. Now, notice the affirmation about the plan. He says, My plan shall be performed. My counsel shall stand. And uh, he's speaking here of the unchanging nature of the plan. Now, They have problems with some other statements of Scripture that would seem to teach that he changes the plan. For instance, uh, Genesis 6.6, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. When you hit a problem like that, what do you do? You always look up John Calvin, right? What did Calvin have to say about it? Calvin says we must understand such statements that it repented the Lord that he'd made man, or it repented the Lord that he'd made Saul king, etc. We must understand such statements as we do other forms of speech which describe God to us after the manner of men. That's called anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphic language. Someone says when God uses anthropomorphic language, he's lisping to help us understand Him. Calvin says, So when God is said to repent, we must understand it to mean that He visibly changes His course of direction, or His course of action, but neither His purpose, nor His will, nor His mind is changed. The plan didn't really change, but He changes His course of action. He says to Moses, let me alone. I'm going to wipe these people out. They're rebellious people. Moses says, Lord, don't wipe them out. What will the Egyptians say? You'll hurt your reputation. And you promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God says, all right, I won't wipe them out. And God didn't change his plan. It was a part of God's plan that he would tell Moses, let me alone. So that I can do this. And Moses would read in that an invitation not to let God alone, but to intercede. And then in answer to Moses' prayer, God would carry out his plan about Israel. His plan, uh, well we saw the same thing in Hezekiah a little earlier in our study of Isaiah. God sends Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, set set your house in order, King Hezekiah, uh, you're going to die. Hezekiah prays and God extends his life. He sets the clock back on his life 15 years. His plan didn't really change. It was his plan that Hezekiah would pray in answer to the prayer. He would extend it 15 years. His plan, it says, is his pleasure. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now certain truths are offered to us there. Nothing can prevent God from doing His pleasure. Uh, Roginus says, I just can't believe that that God would want my son uh, to die. Uh, The the world's gone astray for both God and man. But He says, My plan is my pleasure. Nothing can prevent God from doing all that is his pleasure. What comes to pass is his pleasure. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatever whatsoever he hath pleased. B.B. B. Warfield, great Princeton theologian early in this century, says, Whatever occurs has been foreseen by him from all eternity. And it succeeds in occurring only because its occurrence meets His wish. It may not be apparent to us what wish of His it meets, what place it fills in the general scheme of things to which it is His pleasure to give actuality. But we know it could not occur unless it had such a part to play in God's comprehensive plan. And knowing that, we are satisfied. Unless indeed we cannot trust God with His own plan and feel that He must, that we must insist that He submit it to us and obtain our approval of it before He executes it. But you say, think of all the evil within that plan. Hitler! You're saying Hitler was God's pleasure? Uh, Six million Jews uh, in the Holocaust was God's pleasure? Hmm. We need to be careful there, don't we? We don't want to misrepresent God's character. Other scripture says that some things that occur are not God's pleasure, and that God doesn't do all his pleasure. For instance, in Ezekiel uh, 33.11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and live. And yet some wicked die and go to hell, don't they? But God says, I have no pleasure in that." Or, again, uh, Isaiah 48, a couple of chapters over, verse 18. Oh, he says to Israel, oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments... Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea, if you'd only obeyed me. Think about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Here's God, God in human form, God the Son, weeping over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often, meaning down through the centuries... How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks? And you would not. Obviously, it would have been his pleasure to have them come to him. And they didn't. Uh, <clears throat> how do we put that together? Well, think about a surgeon. Just This doesn't really answer the problem, but it will give us a little insight. Your mother is old. She has diabetes. You take her to the surgeon. He examines her leg where the circulation is now absent. He says, I hate to do it, but we're going to have to amputate. Is it his pleasure to amputate? He hates to do it, but he pleases to do it. Because of a larger cause, he's trying to save her life. And because of that, he does something he really doesn't want to do, and amputates. We need to remember that God's purpose, what is God's purpose in his plan? What's the overall purpose? Well, his immediate purpose is that he's calling many sons to glory. He's saving men. Look at uh, verse 12 here in Isaiah 46. He says, Hearken unto me, ye stout hearted that are far from righteousness. Speaking of you rebellious sinners, listen to me. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. You are far off from righteousness, but I'm going to make a righteousness available to you. Bring it near. My salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion. I'll place salvation in the midst of my people. For Israel my glory. What's he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of the salvation and the righteousness that he was going to bring near in the person of Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world, the rebellious, sinful world that he was going to send his son to become man and live under the law and keep it and then voluntarily assume our guilt and be punished by God in our stead for the whole human race, in a sense, for mankind. And on that basis, he was going to offer righteousness, a right-standing justification, acquittal, as a free gift. Through repentance and faith, turning from our rebellion, really surrendering our will, trusting in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for our sins. I'll make it available. I'll bring it near. Uh, <clears throat> that's, God's, that's what God's doing in the world. God is calling out a people for himself, bringing many sons to glory. Has he called you? Has that salvation been brought to you? Are you righteous in the sight of God? I'm righteous in the sight of God. Now, I'm still a sinner. Everybody said, Amen. <laughs> I'm still a sinner. I sin every day. But I'm accounted not guilty. Because I've surrendered my will to Jesus Christ. There was, for 25 years, my will was anything but surrendered, And that doesn't mean that I obey Him perfectly. But my trend of life is one of obedience. And I trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. Then anyone who does that is accounted righteous. We sung a little earlier. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. We sang that song and uh, that verse of the song. Now, <clears throat> uh, that's his immediate purpose. His ultimate purpose. What is the overall plan about? Well, the overall plan is for God's glory. All of the things, He works for His glory. His glory has to do with the manifestation of His attributes. God is glorious. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, He got glory from the overthrow of Pharaoh. When Jesus died, God was glorified as God's attributes of love and mercy and so on shine forth in a way they never would have otherwise. And the overall purpose of his plan is his glory. Now, we get some of the principles. And that doesn't mean there's not some questions left. Man, a lie. That leaves us with some questions. But we get the big principle. God is in control. God is working out his plan. That's how he tells the future, in detail. He's controlling everything. Some of the things in the plan, in a sense, he doesn't want to happen. He didn't want Israel to reject him. And yet, his plan is his pleasure. He illustrates these principles right here before us in verse 11. Calling, he says, I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I also will do it. What's he talking about, calling a ravenous bird from the east? He's referring to something he had mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him, Cyrus, the two lead gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Now, who is Cyrus? Well, Cyrus was the king of Persia. Isaiah's writing this around 700 B.C. In 600 B.C., according to what Isaiah had predicted... Judah would go into captivity to Babylon. They'd be there 70 years. And in 539 B.C., God would raise up the Medes and the Persians who would conquer the Babylonians. And the king Cyrus, now this is 150 years from when Isaiah's writing, the king Cyrus, who was not yet born, would release them and send them back to Jerusalem. God gives an illustration. He said, I declare the end from the beginning. Want me to illustrate? I'm going to raise up a man. His name will be Cyrus. 150 years from now, he will set my people free. I have declared it. I will bring it to pass. An amazing illustration of the very tight thing that we've been discussing. Now, this raises some problems. The question of free will. Are we, uh, do we have freedom? Wool talked about uh, freedom. Luther wrote a book, The Bondage of the Will, and in it Luther says This, therefore, is also essentially necessary and wholesome for Christians to know that God foreknows nothing by contingency but that he foreknows, purposes, and does all things according to his immutable and eternal and infallible will. Luther says, by this thunderbolt, free will is thrown prostrate and utterly dashed to pieces. Now, he's not saying we're robots, but he's saying God, not man, is in control. If we mean that man is just a puppet, if we struggle with that kind of a problem, God doesn't deprive us of the degree of liberty necessary for responsibility. We're not puppets. Jesus said to Judas, "The Son of Man goes even as is written, even as the plan calls for. Woe be unto him by whom he is betrayed! You're responsible. You'll be held accountable. You're not a puppet." The Dutch theologian Babink has an illustration that uh, might help some. How many of you played chess? Ever played chess? Well, he uses chess as an illustration. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> he puts it like this. He says, uh, Anyone who's ever played chess with another person considerably more skillful at the game recognizing the, recognizes the bewildering sensation of feeling as though his hands were tied, Every move you make fits into the plan of your opponent. You advance your pawn, you capture his bishop, and for a moment you have visions of winning. Later you realize your opponent wanted it that way, and each of your moves worked into his plan. He had planned out five, six moves in advance. He'd thought out every possibility. He has your entire game in his hands. Presently when the game has progressed, it becomes apparent to you that you cannot do anything except what he wants you to. Your play has been thought out well in advance by him, and you can only carry out his will. Every one of your moves will assist in making his victory more complete. In the same way, as it were, the totality of world history is a vast chess game. We all stand in the service of a power that is greater than ourselves. We stand on the side of white, the side of light. Or we can dedicate our strength to the service of black, to the power of the evil one. The game has gone on for many centuries. White advances his men. Black captures them. Sometimes black captures an important piece in white's defense. And then he dreams of victory. But all of black's moves, no matter how brilliant, no matter how annihilating they may appear to be, fit into white's master plan. Think of the cross. It looked like black had won. But it all fit into the plan of white. And well, that gives us uh, some little feel of uh, what we're involved in. Now, <clears throat> this is important to understand God, to have a true concept of God. When somebody comes and says, God is not responsible for this, this wasn't supposed to happen, he didn't have anything to do with it, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not an absent God who set the world up and is letting it run himself. If he is, what's the point of praying? Uh, The God of the Bible is the God who reigns. Our God reigns. It's important to give comfort. Notice he's giving Israel comfort here as he details this. Back in verse 3 of chapter 46. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, I, and even to your old age, I am he. Even to whore hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and deliver you. I'm in control and you belong to me and I will be with you. I will carry you. He's comforting them. And. This is how to receive comfort and solace in your distress. The way to receive comfort and solace is not to say God didn't have anything to do with this tragic thing that's happened to me and my family. You remember, Warfield's a statement that I quoted some time back. The earthly solution, the, the, the solution to all earthly problems. You want a solution to all earthly problems? I'd like to have a solution to all earthly problems. He said the solution to all earthly problems is a firm confidence in the providence of God. God is in control. He's working it out. In a book entitled God is Not Fair, the account is given of how they lost one of their sons in a fire that burned their house. And the mother talks about how overwhelmed she was at this. And she comes... Uh, to the funeral, and she says, here's a, a casket. And it struck me that casket was smaller than usual because my son was smaller than the usual death. My son was seven years old. He wasn't supposed to die like that. My son's supposed to grow up and be a fine young man, and he had all these plans, and we had these plans, and she struggled with it. But she said, God sat so close to me on that funeral bench. He'd never before been closer. She says, as I write this, I'm weeping. The pain is just as great as ever, although it's been weeks and months since it happened. She said, just the other day I was at the grocery store and I saw the young boys as they were helping with the groceries. And I thought, my son is supposed to grow up and do that. And she said, Lord, Larry was going to do that. And I've never heard God speak in an audible voice, she says, but his response was perfectly clear. What peace swept over me. I was able to rejoice. God once again had to remind me that he was in control all the time. God's plan was not my plan. His thoughts were different from my thoughts. Perhaps that is when I realized that Larry never truly was mine. I was just a steward. As I look at my new little baby, Jacob, in the infant seat next to me, I see him so fragile, just three months old. I say to him, you are not mine either. Face to face, she says, with the sovereignty of God. Amen. Well, of course, another purpose of this is to... to Show the non-Christian the key to life. No wonder the non-Christian's puzzled. Is there any sense to life? Yes. But he doesn't have the key. The key is a relationship to Jesus Christ. And then trusting Him in the daily affairs of life. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, something tragic come into your life? How have you responded? Have you tried to divorce God from it lest you blame Him? Or do you realize His sovereignty and trust Him? Do as the lady did and come face to face with the sovereignty of God, but remember the character of God that He so loved that He gave His Son. And if you realize that you are in the service of the power of darkness, that he's the one who's moving you, now is the time to switch sides. Now is the time in the great chess game to choose another master. Pray in your heart like this, if you want to do that, if you're prepared to have a master, Jesus Christ. Lord, I acknowledge my sin and my need of a Savior. I purpose to submit my will to you. I trust you as the one who died to cleanse me. Come into my life. Amen.